So 10.5, we've looked at some of the different types of threat, physical threats, the organisational threats, the types of threat there are, how they're mitigated, all those sorts of things, and the types of problems, technical, non-technical, etc., etc. So 10.5, uh, the potential impact of threats and vulnerabilities on it. So how do these things affect an organisation specifically? First of all, obviously, some of these are quite obvious, so again, tell me to skip if we need to. Loss of sensitive information. If somebody gets hold of your um, private data about you, we talked earlier on about medical information, all those types of things which are highly sensitive to you that could affect, affect you getting a higher job or a better pay and all those things that should be protected. Unauthorised access to the system or service. Again, on the network here, there are very strict logins. You're only supposed to go to certain areas on the, on the desktop when you log in at college. And again, you've got to look at it from the other side. When you're looking after some network, you're the one that's got to stop people going where they shouldn't be going. So some people should have admin rights, some should, people should be able to print, some people should be able to look at the accounting systems, etc., etc. So you have to determine all those different levels and layers in terms of who could do what, where, and when. Uh, other problems, impacts, and threats overload of the system, right? Again, going back last year, I think it was last year, we, we updated the um, firewall that caused loads of knock-on problems of people trying to log in and all sorts of other stuff that really affected the system quite badly. So as a network manager, you've got to look for these vulnerabilities and problems and overload of the system is obviously an issue you need to deal with um, and pick it up early enough so it doesn't become a big issue. So if, if, you're, if you start a new job and you notice the thing's really slow on certain days of the week, you then track down what that problem is and it might be a server that everything else is dependent on, like one of these PBX servers that just doesn't have enough memory to deal with all the phone calls then you fix that problem because you don't want to get them worse, right? So that's overload. Corruption of system files or data. Again, if, if there's something wrong with a file, if you've got a network shared drive, which is on its, on its last legs, it'll be certain parts of that drive are going to be damaged and we'll be saving stuff to it. And it, it'll seem like it's saving, but it isn't. Again, it's trying to have some monitoring systems to make that not happen. If you save data back onto your backups, which is corrupted and you haven't noticed that, when you have a disaster and you try and restore that stuff, it won't happen because it's all corrupted at the point of, of um, construction. Disclosure of private information credentials. Again, your system shouldn't allow people to go in and see everyone else's details. Classic example in here, isn't it? We have lots of people log in. Business students tend to do that quite a lot. They log in, they do a lot of work, and then just leave. Anyone could come in and just use their desktop and do stuff on there. And again, if, it, if it's your responsibility and something happens on the network which is on your watch, then you're the one that gets in trouble, not the person that didn't log in necessarily or log out. Again, it's, it's your job to look after that stuff. Unauthorised access to restricted physical environments. That, again, you know, in, if you were to get hold of one of these keys, you'd be going into, not that you do a great deal, but you'd be able to get into the computer rooms, you'd be able to get into the staff room, there might be some sensitive information on the wall or something. So, again, if your responsibility is to physically lock down your network environment, then that's what you need to do and make sure you double-check it. And then essential security updates not installed. Again, we said this morning, Windows will periodically have a fairly big package of updates, which would be security fixes. As, as things go on, people discover there's problems with the operating system. There's, nothing's perfect, uh, particularly security holes. The, an operating system, effectively, the operating system is just like a, a colander. Yeah, everyone know what that is? Colander? It's a sieve, you serve, you make your spaghetti. That's what the actual operating system is, just full of holes. Some of them block, some of them aren't. And again, if you haven't blocked the right ones, anyone could come through those holes and, and do all sorts of damage. So physically, security updates find problems in that code that's opening and closing those holes and leaving them open, and you'll fix that with by downloading a piece of software which closes those holes or whatever it needs to do. 
that's 10.5. 10.6, risk mitigation controls. This is at the sort of super, at the uh, structural level, I suppose. At the very highest level, um, the UK government has this Quango, Quasi Autonomous Non Government Agency, which is the National Cyber Security Centre. I don't know if it runs out of GCHQ, but it's probably in and around that sort of area. Um, and they are basically an organisation which sort of stress tests all the government services to make sure that there are no threats to them, and if threats are, they're mitigated. So how do we make sure in terms of um, cybersecurity? Obviously here, firewall, secure internet connections. Nobody should be getting onto the system unless they're allowed to. So I've got login controls that. If you come into the college, if you sign up to use the Wi-Fi, if you use the guest Wi-Fi, it still keeps track of who's there and, and against your phone details, but it does give you limited access. If you want to use more things related to your course, then you have to log in with your phone using the BYID, which actually logs onto your account and it tracks everything against your account. Right? So there's a lot of security in those terms. And the firewall is, if the operating system is full of holes, the firewall is a way to sort of prevent those holes being exploited. Um, choose the most secure settings for device and software. So again, if, you're, if you don't use the actual the guest Wi-Fi, if you use a BYID one, you'll notice that there's different security levels on there. There's security certificates that are exchanged and all sorts of things. It's, it's reasonably secure. At home, on your own home router, you don't want to open it up to the world and let everyone see it. You can actually hide the SSID, which is the identifier that goes out on the internet. You can hide that so nobody can find it. It's a good security measure. It's easy to tick a box and it disappears. Um, but again, if you've got a decent password and all these other things, it's just making sure you're protected well enough. Um, and same goes for software. If you're using a piece of software, you, you shouldn't ideally just give anyone access to the admin side of that software if it's going to be something that can be exploited. Because once one person's got the admin, they say, oh, I've got the admin to that here, or oh, I've got the admin to that here. And before you know it, 100 people have the admin login and you've got all sorts of disasters happening. Uh, control access to data and services. Again, I can't physically go into the server room and do anything in the college here. I don't have a great deal of access to anything else. I did have access to Moodle admin for a little while, but they took that away from me. So again, the more control you've got, the less problems there are likely to be. So only certain people should have access to the data center. Only certain people should have access to the software, particularly user management software and the ability to escalate rights. Nobody should be going into the college network system and escalating everyone's rights up to and do all sorts of things. Uh, protection from virus and malware. So again, we run, I think we've got a physical firewall antivirus system. That's what was enabled last year, which caused all the problems because it started blocking everything. And there's different ways of doing that. Um, most systems these days, I think the Windows system itself is reasonably good at stopping most of the malwares and things, and it's always constantly being updated. So again, some of those security patches that you download for Windows are that they found a new exploit from some type of malware, and they're trying to block that out by having an update to the software operating system and up-to-date software and devices, so you should be updated your devices as regularly as possible, paying attention to those signals when they say there's a new patch for Windows and uploading it. Now, even more so on a server, but most, if it's a big organisation, and this has happened to me before, you, you get a new patch for a security problem, you, you apply it to the server and it crashes everything. You need to test on some sort of sand, sandbox to make sure that if you apply some patch, that it's not going to destroy things. And in terms of servers, um, again, we'll play around with this physically next year, but in, in certainly in Linux land, you've got a long-term support server, which is, is supported for five years. It doesn't update to the latest and greatest stuff. It just becomes really reliable and stable. And then you've got a six-month uh, all-singing, all-dancing version that comes out. Right? So if you're running 
a Linux server in a network, which is really needs to be secure, then you'd run that long-term version, which is, is looked after over five years. So at least for five years, you can make some plans. Once you've installed that in 2022, you know that you don't need to do do need to install a new version for five years at least, unless you want to. Unless at least you can then build in some planning. So it's about that type of stuff. Uh, antivirus, anti-malware software. So update that if you can. Obviously, whenever you buy a PC, you always get Norton for a year or something. Then it just bombards you every three minutes to, to update it. And it's quite expensive normally. But again, you know, the, the best type of security is, is stuff in advance, isn't it? If, if you want to be a, ahead of the curve, then update that stuff as and when you can. Uh, firewalls. Software firewalls and hardware firewalls. On your machine, there's probably a software firewall as part of the operating system. It automatically, uh, unless you're an admin on there, again, this is one of the problems with Windows, why the botnet's so prolific, is because most of you on your home machine will make yourself admin because it's just, it's just a pain just to keep logging in as the admin to do stuff, which is quite straightforward. So you make yourself admin, and then you just install stuff as and when you need. But of course, that means that when you're working on a machine, if somebody gets in through your firewall and onto your account, they've got the admin account and they can do whatever they want. So again, it's about making the risk versus the actual suitability. And most people, in, and again, in this organisation, it's really difficult for me to do anything, but I understand that that's in order to protect the whole system. It's no good me just installing software as and when I please, because it could break the whole thing. Um, IDS systems and IPS systems. So again, on we, you know, just need to know these in theory. We can do this in practice once we get the physical servers. But on on the server that I got online, and when I have in, when I install Linux, I automatic the first thing I do once I've freshly installed Linux is I run a piece of software which is called Rootkit Hunter, and that runs in the background of memory, and it looks for malware trying to be exploited into and loaded onto my system and blocks it and against the known database. And I also install a piece of software called fail to ban And that runs a piece of software which, whenever anyone tries to get onto my system, it will check their IP address against um, things that are necessary. And I'll just check, double check it, reverse DNS, and make sure it's not some type of exploit. And it'll just block it and it'll tell me it's been blocked. So it's about intrusion detection. And if, and I've said this loads of times, if you look at your home router log files, you see that you're under attack all the time. Most of the time it's just, you know, it's being pushed away, but you don't know. You need to check periodically on your home uh, router to make sure that people haven't exploited it and got in. And you won't know unless you check. Again, that stuff happens below the radar. If you don't go and check the log files, then you're opening yourself to exploitation. So those are uh, intrusion detection systems. Again, on a big network like this, they'll have an IDS, a physical server, which is specifically detecting and logging everything that's coming into the network, everything that's going out, in order to look for what port's being used, who's doing it, is it a known account, is it something else that needs to be done, etc., etc. Uh, then another security option is encryption. Encryption, there's various types of encryption. You don't need to go into massive detail just yet, but... Encryption obviously is, is scrambling up the, the text files against some sort of known table of hashes. The most simple in the good old days of the, like the Egyptians and those types of things, they would just make, make the actual letters five, five in a different sequence. So A would be D or you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so what is the purpose of encryption? Encryption is to protect the data. Again, if you're sending text files across the internet as text files, anyone can grab those. And if that text file contains passwords or is associated with passwords and somebody's got that data. The process of encryption, purpose obviously is protect your data going across from A to B. Um, the process is that it, it takes that code, it turns it, scrambles it into letters and characters, it sends, it may or may not send a, a sort of encryption key which decodes it 
And again, if you've got a proper encryption system, either end of that chain will have a, an encryptor and a decryptor, and there'll be public and private keys that you share. And then the protocols for that, um, again, the protocol is the set of systems, so it says take this data, apply this hash table encryption to this strength, 248 or 2048 bits or whatever, and then once you've done it, test it, put a, uh, a checksum against it, blah, blah, blah. So whatever the protocol is, depends on how secure you want that information to be from A to B. Uh, user access policies and procedures. So again, in college, there, there is a policy and procedure document which says who can do what on the network, and if they do violate it, what are the penalties, etc. All of you signed a user agreement saying this is what you would agree to do on the network, and, and you understand that if you don't follow those rules, you will be punished in some way or another. And that's true of any company. Any company you sign up for, the first thing, because everything's com computers these days, isn't it? So you'll sign some sort of agreement saying this is what you will agree to do and not do on the network. IT user policies, again, you'll have a series of documents that will say what you can do based on your job role. If you join a company as a network um, technician, you'll be given obviously certain privileges above and beyond what normal people would have. So they might give you a phone and a laptop, which allows you to get in and mess around on the server. So you'd sign some sort of policy agreement saying, I understand that I've got access to the server, I understand that I won't do this unless I ask somebody about it, etc. Um, and all of that, obviously in order to do all those things, you need some sort of skills. So staff training and CPD, a question on the exam might be, what is CPD? It's continuing professional development. Again, things move fast. If you've trained yourself on um, Windows 2012, which is sort of the main one at the moment, People are moving to 2019, but it's, it's still quite new and expensive, and, and 2012 is still being supported. Eventually, uh, Microsoft will turn off the tap. They'll say, we're no longer supporting Windows 2012 to try to encourage people and force people, basically, to move to 2019. So if you did all of your training on Windows 2012 and your company has to move to 2019 or 2025 or whatever it might be, then obviously you need some sort of training so you know what you're doing. So training is... Ongoing training is really important. And this, this phrase here, the human firewall. If you're trained in what to look for, so you don't open the door up to somebody that just because they're wearing a Serco thing and you ask them why they're there and what they're doing and who they're there to see and what documents they've got, etc., etc. So training yourself in those detections and protections of the system, which would be your job at some point. And then as a fail-safe then, you've got backups. You do a full backup. Make sure you just take every single thing, dump it off on a time basis, maybe. Uh, you can then, once you've got a full backup, you can do an incremental backup, so you can just add to it over, over a week or two weeks or two days or three months, whatever it is, your timetable. And then you might do a differential backup. So what is the difference? So you say, there's the full backup. I just want to save whatever has changed in the last three months rather than doing an incremental one. So they're just slightly different, slightly different versions of the same thing. Uh, software and system maintenance. Um, this is repetition here, isn't it, to some extent? Again, if you're not running the latest software, then don't be surprised if you're open to exploitation um, and attack, because those later things are much more secure. If you're running Windows XP at home, then don't be surprised if you can have some problems, because it's just no longer supported. And, it's, and it, it was designed for the hardware of the day, and the hardware of today is a lot different, and people can get into your system much more easily. If nothing else, if not other than the fact that Windows XP was mostly 32-bit, I think. Um, 
schedule maintenance, again, software maintenance, every now and again, over the holidays when you're away, because nobody's in college, college updates all of their internal systems and services. So they'll be doing upgrades to the routers, the switches, all that other stuff, to make sure that when you come back in, teaching time, everything's working as it should be. So generally, that works. Uh, and then to avoid maintenance, avoid disruption to service. If, if you do those things at the right time for the right reasons, then you don't get to a situation where, I mean, imagine the situation if uh, last week or the week before when it was during your exam, you were just about to save your exam and a message popped up said, uh, network team is just updating the servers. You can't save now. Thank you very much for your patience. You know, that'd be a really bad time to start doing network um, updates. Uh, other things to do then, these are sort of physical things to protect the network. Air gaps, you'll have devices in between, so people can't do a man in the middle attack and you could actually detect that somebody's trying to break into your network through these air gaps. A um, lot of organisations use what's called a honeypot. Again, all these things are based on these analogies, aren't you? As you imagine, you stick a jar of honey outside, you soon get it full of wasps. Um, the honeypot is a pretend server with loads of security problems that are opened up, uh, but it's off your network just enough that you can trap those people that come in and then you've got the details about how to block them and destroy them next time. So that's what a honeypot is. And what we really ideally need in this college, what we don't, is a virtual private network. Well, there are some, but we need one for our, for our course. Uh, you set up a separate network with all the physical controls um, and it can't be seen on the outside world, but it allows you to do all the things you need to do in, in, that, as you're in a private space. And if, again, we talked about this, I think, briefly, if you're in an internet cafe, Ideally, you'd use a VPN rather than using that publicly open Wi-Fi that's just exposing itself to attack. So a VPN's a good way of actually tunneling data back and forth through uh, the network. So if you're sending messages to each other during the lesson on your phones, then it can't be intercepted. Something like that. All right, VPN's quite useful. And again, think about VPNs in terms of the security. It does tunneling, it does encryption. It means that your data is not going to be grabbed by somebody and exploited. And if you're out in out about in public space and you do have to get onto your bank account then the last thing you want is somebody grabbing that data. 10.7, the process and protocols of internet security assurance. Assurance in this sense is to make, you, you can assure somebody that their stuff is safe. Right, so this is all the things you can do to make sure that things are going to work the way they should. So there's processes, first of all, the actual firewall itself, have you installed it properly, have you configured it properly, will it work the way it's supposed to? And in most cases, they'll, and again, in terms of security policies and, and insurance, if you haven't followed the guidelines and regulations and the training for an for a internet service provider's firewall, for example, if there's any breaches, they'll just come back to you and say, well, you didn't have the training, not our problem, and then you won't get the insurance. So you've got to be careful about this stuff. So in terms of a firewall, and we can play around with this next year properly, I hope, um, you can actually configure the firewall to look for certain things. Now... For us, we don't want to be blocking people going out checking their NFTs on the internet, do we? But we do want people stopping things like pornography, right? Because that's a legal requirement in, in this college because of the age range. So the inbound and outbound traffic, some stuff has to come in and out. Some stuff maybe should go out but not come back in and vice versa, right? So you have to set those rules. What can you get out to? What can come in? What can go out? And, what, and for what reason? And all of that needs to be logged and checked and tracked. So types of traffic... Again, if you're doing internet traffic, then port 443, the secure port, should be open for people to actually look at and browse websites. Um, but in this college, port 22 shouldn't be open because people shouldn't be SSHing into the college to actually do some damage. 
So that's the sort of thing to do. Uh, application rules. Again, as you remember from your exam, I don't know if it, it applied to you, some of you did. In your exam, some of you didn't have internet access. So you can apply rules to the system so that some of you in that exam had access to internet, some of you didn't. And that can be applied at the firewall level. Uh, destination and source rules. Again, um, if when I set up our server, our practice server, I had to tell the, fire, uh, the network team the IP address and the different things that I wanted to use and the ports I was using, otherwise it was just blocked by the firewall. So now when I go onto our server and I look at Webmin, which is on port 10004, and if I look at this, that and the other, then those things are allowed because the firewall has been disabled for that particular traffic. Uh, other processes we can undertake is network segregation, so split it up to protect it. The classic one at home, if you're going to run a web server at home, you need to run it on a demilitarized zone. That protects your internal network from the external traffic. But you can have virtual LANs, right? so you can actually set up. These are, as, as the name suggests, it's not something that physically exists. You just create it in software, in virtual reality, as it were. So you just say, these IP addresses are going to work as part of a separate network. Now, again, as an example, what you could do at home, your home router by default will be at the class C network, 192.168, but you can configure your firewall so that your internal network is 10 dot something, you know, class B network. There are, there are three, there's class A, class B and class C network range that are available for you to use that aren't out in the public domain. So in turn, I would, as a security, as a security uh, top tip, I would recommend you set your internal network to the class B network because most people are going to attack your network, assuming, quite rightly, that it's Class C, which it will have to be. But then they know what your internal network is as well. But if they get into your router, they will not know that you've got a Class B network internally, so they can't get in and get your private files. Same thing at a big college. So a virtual LAN just sets some internal addresses, which are slightly different, all based on that one IP address. Physical network separation. Again, if you're, um, if you're worried about stuff, you might have a... A server which is in the, in the garage, whatever, doing something, which is physically connected uh, to some parts of your network, but not to others. Right? So that isolates it physically. You could have a switch which will only go one way. So that, that server will send stuff through. Maybe you might set up a server in your garage for backups. Right? So you make it, make it only allow one-way traffic, so you back stuff up to it, but nobody can get in and grab your backups. So that way they're quite safe. Um, if you're geeky enough to do that and have a... a a sand in your garage like I do. That's the sort of thing you might do. Um, physical network separation. I did that. Offline networks. Again, you might have a... You can have a hot or a cold network up in the cloud. It actually replicates your entire network just in case you have some, some failure locally. You can then use that cloud temporarily until you get back up and running. So that would be a, uh, an offline network. Uh, the other classic offline network, I guess, is the military the military use stuff so they, they do sort of they they use like a marine band or something when they're out at sea for argument's sake and it's not part of the regular networks but they need to be able to communicate with each other securely uh, network monitoring again if you look at your router logs you can see exactly what people have been doing on your on your internet connection you can see who's been coming in what they've been trying to do on the server i've showed you before i think on our main server online i think i get there's attacks there every couple of seconds, really, on, in, from different people. It tends to be the same sort of people, or same machines, probably robot machines. All right, so you need to monitor what's happening on the, on the network so you can try to figure out problems before they occur. One aspect of network is going to be sort of bandwidth monitoring. Are there peaks and troughs during the day which you can take advantage of? If the network is really busy at a certain time of day, you might then 
if depending on what sort of relationship you've got with your internet connectivity, you might be able to say, well, I only need really high bandwidth between these hours. The rest of the time, I don't really care. So you, you might get a, a better deal financially that only fits on that particular time. Uh, removable media controls. Obviously, as you know, if you plug in a USB device here, it asks you to encrypt it. If you do ask, if you do agree to encrypt it, you're probably there for five or six days while it does it. But one of the worst things, and it's not quite so bad as it used to be, but people used to bring in USB devices and they could actually load an operating system and take all the data off and then just disappear and nobody would even know. So removable media controls means stopping people coming in and, and plugging in a device and taking all your stuff away. And if you think about it, most, most operating systems you could probably run off a USB drive. And if people haven't disabled running from USB, somebody can plug it in, run up their operating system, find out what the network is, get all the data they need and leave. They're probably only there for 20 minutes. Uh, antivirus, again, this is a bit repetitive, but running that, the process of actually setting it up, making sure it's configured properly. Various antivirus, I think the antivirus, if I do run Windows, which I don't, but the one I used to use was Clam. I think Clam was an open source one. And that had an open... It had an online database, so periodically it would poll that online database, and some there was several volunteers which would be looking for virus signatures and adding to that database. So that was a live feed of all the actual viruses that are about. It would update itself to look for those signatures. Manage user privileges. So again, are people using the thing effectively? Should they have those permissions? Do they have too many rights, not enough rights, etc.? That's your job if you're on the network. Uh, and then testing. So you'll see loads of jobs, well-paid jobs, to do as a, a pen testing, so penetration testing. So you'll go inside a company's network uh, and you'll try to then break into it with your laptop and then you'll go outside the network and try and break into it and you'll make reports about what are the problems that you've found as, as you use those different tools. So again, these are the key tools you'll be looking for. I guess port scanning, you can get open source port scanning software which basically just polls all of the internet connectivity on the network and it just tells you which ports are open for which traffic, for which protocols and what you can do about it. Uh, and then SQL injection testing, we talked about this morning. If Obviously, if a system's running a database, the database tends to have a front end and a back end and obviously something in between. If you can grab some data that's going from the front end to the back end database, you can actually take that data apart and figure out what it is because it tends to be text files. Um, so... That would be an SQL injection because somebody could go onto a website and inject their password and username into that stuff that goes to the database and they've got control of the database. So again, you'll see, if you look on your browser, you can do, have a setting on there for SQL injection checks and cross-site scripting and all that type of stuff. One other thing here is um, you'll notice me, well, again, I'm going to try to throw this stuff out, but when you set up an email system, you can set it up for secure socket layers. That's actually using specific ports and protocols to make sure that if people connect across the sessions to try and connect to your website or your email system or whatever it might be, it checks against a certificate. They can only do it if they send this, their certificate to you and if you don't receive it, you just block them out. Um, and then transport layer security, so they'll scan to see if that person's got the, the appropriate certificate to come onto your network. Uh, and then protocols. Don't have any numbers here. I think we looked this up before. My king of protocols, Bailey. Um, VPN, so virtual private network. Certain ports that are allowed. IPsec VPN, again, is a piece of software which is an open source um, IP protection service. Runs on, for argument's sake, 137. I don't know what the numbers are, but you know, you'll find it out, I'm sure. 
secure socket layer VPN, probably running on 465 or 963, one of those numbers. But again, anyway, protocol is, is a number that allows it to go in and out against a certain set of systems. Uh, SSL TLS is an email system that protects against email exploitation. And it tends to, again, I think, I think it's 993 and 465 are the two ports for SMTP and IMAP, at least. Um, secure file transfer protocol. FTP runs on port 21, uh, but you can specify any port to run secure version of it. But again, FTP is running on every, every operating system by default. So again, if, it, if you haven't switched it off and disabled it, I can actually find out your IP address and I can try and get in knowing your login is probably fairly straightforward and I could just use port 21 and get in and start dragging files off your system if I wanted to. So again, needs, but if you're running on secure, that stuff is all uh, based on um, sending certificates, based on really strict passwords, encryption, all sorts of things. Much dif more difficult to get in and do anything. Uh, SSH or secure shell runs on port 22. Doesn't have to, again, you can pre-specify. I'm not gonna say because Louis recording this, but on my home machine, I have changed port 22 to a different one. Now I know what it is, but nobody else does. And nobody else, no other machine is gonna find out what that port is, or they could try, but by the time that they've given up, because most, most, most robots that attack your network system, they'll try three or four times and then they'll give up because it's not worth their time. So if they try port 22 and they don't get in after three or four times, they just go away. So it's a good way of making your net, simple thing like that makes your network really secure because everyone's looking at port 22 um, and that's where they'll be attacking. Sorry, it's just moving the goalpost a little bit. And final protocol, HTTPS port uh, 443. Again, that anything you do on the internet, particularly if you're doing banking, if it's on this secure port, any data from your machine to the bank and back will be through uh, encrypted um, tunnels using fairly high security measures. Right, that's 10.7. Uh, 10.8 is the last one, you'll be pleased to hear, or maybe not. Uh, interrelationship of components required for an effective computer security system. So given all these problems, all these things we understand, what do we need to do as effective network managers in order to make this all come together? And what should we understand? So this is like a summary, isn't it? So um, this is how this stuff ties together, I suppose. So first of all, just to remind you, CIA, confidentiality, integrity, uh, availability. So your system should comply with that. So you should make it efficient, but be secure. It's no good making the system work really well if it's full of holes and you just get hacked every five minutes because that's not really efficient at all. Um, and it should be available, but availability doesn't mean making it open to the world. So again, it's having that balance of security versus usability. Uh, then we've got this IAAA, Identification, Authentication Authorization Accountability. This is a sort of um, a process, I suppose, that you should go through, like a framework, I suppose, maybe framework's a better term. You should, first of all, identify. So if you went into a, if you were a security expert, you went into a company, you charged a thousand pounds a day or whatever, you say, right, first of all, I need to identify who's using the network and what accessibility they need, how does it actually function? I'll then do, a, do an investigation to find out what roles and responsibilities those people have, who lets them get in and what, what has final responsibility, so who is, who's the bottom line, and then who's going to get in trouble if it all goes pear-shaped. Right? So you make a, 
you make a sort of research into this, and you build up a framework, and you say, okay, looking in your system, the key area you've got is you've got no accountability for argument's sake, therefore you need somebody in charge of this to do that where the buck stops. And finally, risk management. All of this stuff, I think every single unit we've looked at, particularly when it comes to computing, is about risk management. Right? You know you're going to be attacked, you know you're going to get viruses, you know something bad is going to happen, you just don't know when, but... If you've got a rough idea of what things that might happen, right? if you read around, you read the magazines and look at the internet, you know there's a certain exploit on Windows servers. You just need to be aware of it and do something about it. Right? So risk mitigation and management is understanding what you're up against and doing as much as you can within reason to make it stop, or at least make it not as bad as it could be. So first thing, risk management. First of all, understand what threats there are. And again, there are, there are a couple of websites run by the government which actually, if you follow them, they'll tell you what the latest threats and problems are. And they're well worth signing up for those to get the feeds from them because they'll tell you all the exploits that are coming across from GCHQ uh, that you can actually deal with. And again, if you're ahead of the game, it's much better. If you find out there's a threat happening and you deal with it, then your company's going to be much safer. Vulnerabilities, again, reading the magazines about the operating system, what's good, what's bad, how do you fix it, what the problems might be, and just keep updating those patches. Um, risk management is understand the impact. If I make the operation really easy, what's going to be the impact on my organisation? Will it cost me money? Will it mean people are going to leave the job? You know, making that balance. Probability. What's the probability of this network collapsing in the next ten years? Probably medium, I suppose, for whatever reason. Um, and then mitigation, what are you going to do about it? If you cannot fix all those things, at least make them not as bad as they could be. Any questions? Right, so that's secure.